All right, if you have your Bible, would you turn to Proverbs chapter 6? Proverbs chapter 6. We are in week 6 of our Proverbs series. We've been kind of hanging out in the first nine chapters where we find these 14 little sermonettes. Ten of them are appeals from Solomon. It's fatherly appeals to his son. They all start with my son. And four of them are sermons or poems from or about Lady Wisdom. We're going to do one of those next week. So Lady Wisdom. Lady Wisdom is calling out to anybody who will listen. So those are four of them. We haven't done any of those yet. Uh, But we've been hanging out in these first chapters. And then as we see the themes that are developing in these appeals from Solomon to his son, we've been kind of looking at chapters 10 to 29, which contain like over 900 uh, memorable sayings that encapsulate some universal truth or some piece of advice. Now, Proverbs are very common for all of us. All of us know a bunch of Proverbs. Every week I've been saying a few like cultural ones that most people know. Today is no different. Uh, How about honesty is the best? Oh, look at you guys. You're sharp. You're all rested up. How about beauty is in the eye of the? All right. Yeah, you've got some young kids playing along here. Uh, How about actions speak louder than what? Words. All right. So you guys know Proverbs. And they're universally true. All of us know, yes, these are true. And sometimes they contain for us instruction or advice. And the book of Proverbs is no different. This morning, though, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to bite off a big chunk. So it's 19 verses. Now, typically, I read the passage I'm going to preach from, and then I go back to it and kind of take it apart. But because it's so long, and I don't want us to be here all day, you guys are going to be getting hungry. This is the third service, after all. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it as we go through the sermon. But this particular section, it might, if you've read it already, it might seem a little disjointed. You might be asking yourself, what is going on here and how do these things connect? And so what I want to do is I want to show you how they connect. And I want you to be looking for a couple themes as we go through each of these four sections. This is one of those fatherly appeals. It begins with my son. And it follows kind of like... Um, stages of wrongdoing or evil. In fact, I was going to call the sermon The Escalation of Evil. But then I thought, that sounds like a movie that would come out right before Halloween. I don't really like that as a sermon title. And so the title I'm using this morning is Wisdom for the Wayward. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Or if you're using your little Proverbs journal we gave you, you can write that down. Wisdom for the Wayward. Now, this is super important that we connect with what's going on here, because the Proverbs are universal truth that anybody who receives it and applies it can benefit from. You don't have to be, you could be an atheist, you don't have to be a Jesus follower. A bunch of the Proverbs that are in there are just reality about the way the world works and things that people of all faiths and all backgrounds would just affirm and go, yes, that's true. Kind of like honesty is the best policy. And so there's lots of things you can benefit from. But as we see, this book has been compiled by King Solomon, who received supernatural insight and understanding and wisdom from God to reign over his people. He is writing this to his own son. And so this is Solomon to his son. But because it's inspired and preserved for us in the scriptures, it's also God speaking to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And so this is God saying, my son Israel, so it's for all Israelites. But what's important for us as Jesus followers is to recognize that Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God. Do you realize that? 
Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he came from God and he displayed God perfectly. He lived a life in line with the heart, nature, character of God. He was himself equal with God and he fulfilled all of the purposes of God to make him both steadfast in love and faithfulness. Do you realize this? And so when we encounter wisdom, we are encountering Christ. And so throughout this section, I want to show you not just these kind of escalations of evil with kind of wisdom and advice from a father to a son, but I want to show you where there is power from God through Christ. And so I don't think anybody gets this more clearly than the Apostle Paul did as he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now he had presented the good news about Jesus, and these people believed him, and they were immediately transformed. They received a new heart miraculously. The Holy Spirit fell on them. They began speaking in tongues and performing all kinds of miracles and signs. God was among them, and it transformed their whole life as a community. But in the midst of that period of time, new people started coming in with new ideas, new formulations, uh, religion, and philosophy, and all sorts of different ways of thinking. They were trying to undermine the, the authority of the Apostle Paul. They were trying to come against this good news about Jesus. And so Paul's writing a bit of a corrective letter. And in 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 20, he writes the following to this church. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where are you at? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. He's saying none of y'all are smart enough to figure this out. There's not enough logic or philosophy or pondering that will bring you from what you can know to who God is. You can't get there. But it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So everyone who hears it and trusts it. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs. And all religious people do this. We go, yes, there's a God. But I need you to prove it to me. And so I want you to do this or I want you to do that. Ultimately, we say, I will be the judge of you, God. This is the religious spirit. The Jews demand a sign. Greeks seek wisdom. They say, let's see if my ideas are better than your ideas, and we'll take this toe-to-toe, head-to-head, and find out who prevails. But we preach Christ crucified, the God-man who died that you may live. He says, this is a stumbling block to Jews. What? God doesn't die. God isn't a man. How could this be? And folly to the Gentiles. How can power come through weakness? How can life come through death? Do you see how contrary this is? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Don't you love that? And so I want to not just give you some good advice from an old wise king to his son that we can all benefit from. I want to show you how this fits into the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so we're going to look at the the escalation of evil, or better said, wisdom for the wayward. So God, we just pray that as we look to your word, that you would speak to us. Let your word be alive and active in our hearts and minds. God, expose in us what needs to be exposed so that you can remedy it. And God, set us on the path that we should go, a path that leads to life and liberty. God, peace 
and prosperity. We know that this is what you want to give us. This is what you designed for us to experience. This is what you died to restore. And so we just pray, God, pray for all of us that we would have the faith to receive the truth of what your word is speaking to us now. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. What we need, though, what I just tried to give to you was kind of like corrective lenses. How many of you guys wear corrective lenses, glasses or contacts? I see a bunch of you guys with glasses in this service. All right. I'm here to tell you that um, I have perfect vision. I saved that for you this morning. I want you to know. I should have been an Air Force pilot. My eyesight is perfect. I don't need glasses at all. However, uh, Tiffany, my wife, she does wear glasses, but she didn't when we met. We started dating when she was a senior in high school, and I just started community college, and she didn't wear glasses. And we were out with a friend, and we were driving down International Speedway Boulevard. She was driving. Our friend Elizabeth was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. I don't know where we were going, but I remember this very distinctly. Uh, Elizabeth wore glasses, and we pulled up to a stoplight, and Elizabeth and Tiffany were talking about uh, whether glasses could make you cute or not. You know, the kind of thing girls talk about. <laughs> and so I'm in the back seat, not being a girl, and uh, Elizabeth takes off her glasses, and Tiffany puts them on to look in the mirror, and then when she looks through the windshield, she goes, oh my goodness, I can see leaves on trees. <laughs> my first thought was, get out of the car, get out of the car now. You should not be driving this car if you are now, for the first time, seeing leaves on trees. I took her directly to the eye doctor. We got her some glasses. Now, here's the thing. Uh, all of us are, are living in a world, spiritually, where we are, at best, nearsighted. And more aptly described as blind as a bat. And what we have in Jesus are the corrective lenses that help us to understand the world as we walk through it. And that's what wisdom is meant to do. And so wisdom does that. Jesus does that. Jesus is wisdom. And Jesus is the power of God. So let's walk through these four exhibitions and see how far we can get before we run out of time. Exhibit A. You guys ready? Well, ready or not, here I come. Verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. What is Solomon talking about here? Now, our monetary system today is very different than it was in the ancient Near East. They did not have Visa cards. They did not have credit scores. They did not have Apple Pay. They did not have banks. They didn't even have fiat currency. And so while there was all sorts of bartering and land and ownership and commerce, it existed very differently. One of the things that you could do in order to have access to resources to make money was to make a promise. Your promise was only as good as your word. And if your word wasn't any good, you could find somebody with a good word who would take up a security on your behalf. They would say, I will promise to pay if they cannot. I believe in them. And essentially, your credit was established by the word of another. And what Solomon is saying to his son is, don't do that. That is dumb. So let me ask you this way. The closest thing I can think of in our day and age would be co-signing on an auto loan. Don't raise your hand if you've ever co-signed on an auto loan. I've done it myself. And I tell you what, it's a terrible thing to do. And this is essentially what Solomon is saying. Now, he's using this as an illustration for a larger category of ideas. And that idea is 
foolishness. Somebody say foolishness. We're taking evil and we're turning it all the way down to one. We're going, some of the mistakes you can make that can end in calamity, that can get you ensnared, entrapped, captive, is by making decisions that you do not realize are foolish. Now, this is part of being young, and as we grow, we become less and less foolish, foolish through experience. How many of you guys have found this to be true, right? It was Warren Buffett who was asked the secret to his success. He said the secret was good decisions. He was then asked, well, how do you learn how to make good decisions? And he said, he said, bad decisions, right? And so if you're growing at all, you're learning from your mistakes. But here you have a father speaking to a son who's saying, here's how to avoid these mistakes. And I love the fact that he says, this is a terrible thing. It's foolish. Don't do it. But he also says, if you've already done it, then here's what to do. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad the Bible's not full of things that go, don't do that? And you're like, oh, well, I already did that. Well, you're done, you know? You're so dumb. Oh, well. Next. You know, aren't you glad? The scriptures are real about real life and what we actually experience. And so Solomon says, if you did this, you need to undo this fast. You need to humble yourself. You need to go back to that person. Say, actually, I can't do that. And if you can't undo it, you need to make it right. You need to work and work and work until that thing is taken care of. And now that debt is between you and that person and not you and another person and that person. And so you've got to get out of it. Why? Because you will be trapped underneath of it. So this is advice against foolishness, and it develops a theme throughout Proverbs that we'll see clearly if you look at those other 900 plus little Proverbs. Here's a couple, couple of them as a sample. Proverbs twenty two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And so the picture here is all children are foolish. You, you start life foolish. Foolish means I'm only paying attention to me and right now. That is foolish. That is all children. They are aware of what they want, how they feel, what they're afraid of, what they're angry at, who took what they have from them. Children typically are not great planners, right? Because they're living right here in this moment. But as you grow, you have to get beyond your own desires, appetites, beyond your own present experience. And so if you're at an age where someone could take advantage of you or you come out in a situation where they go, hey, would you do this thing for me? And you don't know better, you might say yes. And then you would find yourself trapped. And so it is this shepherding, this rod of training that, dr that drives you or leads you to a place where that folly you've left behind. Proverbs 14, 29 says it this way. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Now that's true. Now most children have a hasty temper. I don't know how many times I've been working at my desk and heard from the other room my five-year-old son go, hey, that's mine, just angry as can be. Now, that's typical if you're five. Now, if you are in the lobby and somebody accidentally picks up your coffee and that's your response, we may have a problem there. Hey, get off my coffee. That's mine. Because that's foolish. Do you see it? Do you see it? So it's bound up in the heart of a child, and you're supposed to grow out of that, and this is what the scriptures are guiding us towards. Proverbs 18, 13 says it this way. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. Sometimes I do this thing where I ask a rhetorical question in a sermon. And a lot of times people answer my rhetorical question. But sometimes I'm asking a question that the answer you're thinking of is the wrong answer. And then I ask the question, and then somebody shouts it out, and then I have to make them feel dumb the rest of the morning. <laughs> Should have waited. Shouldn't have said anything. And this is also childish and foolish when we immediately go in to start talking about something we don't know about. Kids do this all the time. Trust me, I've got four of them. And so this is one of the things that Solomon's saying, let's leave that folly behind. And so if you've messed it up, if you've gone too far, back up, back out, start over, 
and, and work hard until you get there. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. This is one of those conundrum Proverbs. I love these. They tell you to do two opposite things. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So you're going to engage with him? Now you're the idiot. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly, or he'll be wise in his own eyes. So what am I supposed to do? Answer him or not answer him? You see the conundrum? But the point is, it doesn't matter what you do, because you can't fix foolish from the outside. Foolish has got to get fixed from the inside. That's why this appeal says, don't put yourself in that situation. So you, are you seeing the category that's, that's created? And so we've got the evil level set to foolish. Now, I want to point out something to you, that Solomon's using this terminology of debt and being entrapped by debt. But that is a theme that grows throughout the scriptures. And in fact, the New Testament writers harness that to talk about our spiritual condition. It's not just about money, folks. It's about your relationship with God and the way you exist in the world. This is why the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians in chapter 2 and say to them, see to it that no one takes you captive. You're in a snare. You're in a trap. By what? Philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Brothers and sisters, there's a bunch of garbage out there that presents itself as we've always done it this way and so it's good. Or here's an ideology that sounds right. Or this is a way of thinking that's just totally empty and it's coming at you and it will appeal to something on the inside of you that's foolish and says yeah the world should be like that but it never will be and it can't and those things will take you captive and Paul says don't let that happen the scriptures say don't let that happen only only be convinced according to Christ and here's the reality verse 9 and look at the what I've put in bold I want you to see this for in him somebody say in him for in him the whole fullness of deity God himself dwells bodily. So the God who made all this and set this whole wisdom thing up existed in the person of Jesus. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not something from the outside in. Something from the inside out. A miracle of God. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Only he can do this. And how did this happen? Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, by faith, you joined him in his death. And then in him, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And he says it again this way. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then he uses the monetary language in verse 14. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Yes, you made foolish choices. Yes, you ended up with lots of wrath, lots of consequences. You were hopeless and could do nothing from the outside in. But God showed up and in his power and his wisdom, he made a way to transform you from the inside out by faith and grace, which is his gift that we receive. And then all of our debts go away. Do you understand how powerful this is? And though this is the reason we don't get in debt, this is the reason we don't, uh, we don't borrow things from other people, this is the reason that we give money if we have and we don't if we don't. People say that to, the, to me all the time, I get this, I've been getting this for years and years and years, and it sounds like a good idea on the surface. People come to me and they say, you know what we need? We need a directory of all the businesses in the church so that if I want to have some work done in my house or I need this service, I can find a good Christian person who's a part of my church and I can find them and give them the business. That sounds wonderful, except it's a terrible idea. You know why? Because we let anybody come here. 
That's why. Because you can put a fish on your business card, and it doesn't mean you have integrity. Can I get an amen? When some contractor's license and insurance is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, I don't think that's legit. But what happens when I put them in a book and say, here's people you can trust, and then they ruin your bathroom, and how do you feel about me? Do you see what's going on here? And so this is where foolishness must subside and the wisdom of Christ must come. He sets us free, and so we live in ways to be generous and outwards other people, not trying to figure out the best way to get for ourselves. Make sense? Great, because I'm moving on. We're out of time. Exhibit B. We're turning up the volume from foolishness to laziness. So now we're going from terrible twos to middle school. You ready? <laughs> Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Even the word sluggard sounds like slow. Sluggard. <laughs> Consider her ways and be wise without having any chief or officer or ruler or mom to say, get out of bed. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, oh sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? And then we go, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. You can just feel it slow down. And what will happen? Poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. In the same way that foolishness begins in the heart of a child, it is our preoccupation with self and how we feel and what we want and what we don't want that informs our laziness. And this becomes a big theme throughout the Proverbs. In fact, I could have given you 10 pages of Proverbs about laziness, a slack hand, poverty, and hard work. But here's a sampling, Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty. But the hand of the diligent makes rich. Proverbs 13.4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Whoever is slack in his work, Proverbs 18.9, is a brother to him who destroys. Think about that. And I love these. These get funny, actually, towards the end of the Proverbs. The sluggard says, there is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. I can't go to work. There's another variant. It's too dangerous. Triple mask. Two on my mouth and one on my eyes. Just excuses, just stupid excuses. I like this one, Proverbs 26, 14. As the door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. You can just hear it. This one's even worse. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. <laughs> Too hard. You get the picture? So this is something that's got to be purged out of us. It starts with a myopic, nearsighted sense of what do I want, how do I feel. And all, all of us who are responsible, highly, well, fairly functioning adults, we've learned this lesson. But it's all still on the inside of us, and we all know that. And I can prove that to you, because anybody who's ever used an alarm clock, and that thing goes off at some ungodly hour of the morning, and there's that little magic button that says snooze. Every single one of us, we have falsely believed that six more minutes would make the difference, <laughs> haven't we? We hit that button, oh no, I can't, not yet, six minutes later. No one's ever been like, wow, that did it, you know? No, we're like, we hit it nine times, we're like, I don't need to shower, ah. What, because laziness doesn't lead to anything, do you understand? It never actually gets better, and so you have to purge out the laziness. 
you gotta get you gotta get rid of it. And so Solomon says, go study the ant. She's hardworking, she never stops. In fact, she's ready for winter. She has no boss, no accountability. She's out there working. That's what you need to be like. You leave foolishness behind, you leave laziness behind. And, and this is so clearly what we see in the person of Jesus. Right from the get-go. Jesus receives the baptism. The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. His Father speaks from heaven. He begins immediately to minister. He spends a whole day teaching, preaching. I mean, I'm preaching like four hours worth of content in like 35 minutes and just talking fast, hoping you can keep up. Jesus had all day, no amplification, just preaching, 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 interacting with people. And then it says he started healing people. And the whole town lines up, and he just heals them, heals them, heals them, heals them. And I don't think Jesus was like one of those new doctors now that wants to see you for 13 minutes, you know, and there's somebody else taking notes. Next, 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 next. Jesus is like caring about people, and so he's literally spending his whole day, his whole evening. It says deep into the night, and he healed every single person. Now the disciples, they're on cloud nine. They're like, we're going big. This thing's going viral. We're going to have a million views on YouTube. We're going to have so much. The followers is going to go crazy. And so they wake up, you know, 830 after hitting the snooze nine times, and they go to find Jesus, and he's gone. Because Mark 135, it says, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. And went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Why? Because even Jesus needed direction from his father. Even Jesus knew that another hour of sleep was not going to make a difference, but not being connected to his father and having his direction and having his power and walking in his way would ruin the whole day. And this is what wisdom looks like, and this is what wisdom calls to. And the reality is, is that none of us can get there on our own because you can't get it from the outside in. It's got to start from the inside out. This is, why, this is why Jesus kept doing all these miracles on the Sabbath. You ever wonder that? You're like, Jesus, why can't you do a miracle on, you know, Thursday? No, he has to walk in and provoke the system by doing a miracle, a work of God. Only God could do it, and he did it right on the Sabbath day. He provoked everybody. John 5, 16 talks about that. It says, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and i am working this is why the jews were seeking all the more to kill him not only because he was breaking the sabbath but because he was even calling god his own father making himself equal with god do you see the claim right here he says you came into a world that god set into motion you have a god that never sleeps and never slumbers he works hard he has worked hard and he's given as a gift to us rest this is why jesus did it on the sabbath he wanted to clear it up he wanted to say, listen, you guys have made the Sabbath a trap. And so he came in, and he didn't break any of the laws because Jesus came to fulfill the law, but he did show up to show them what the Sabbath was all about. Think about this. The Sabbath was given by God to the Israelites after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Do you know how many days off a slave gets? Zero. 400 years of slavery. You know the first, this command that's given to him about the Sabbath? He says, you're going to work six days, yes, because work is good. But on the seventh day, you rest. Think about what a gift that was. That says you are valuable, you are free, you have dignity. Yes, your work matters, but your relationship with me matters. And so you trust me, and you don't work endlessly like the pagans do. Do not have a God. No, you honor me with your time, and you live in rhythm and rest, and you receive it as a gift. Isn't that beautiful? And then what do we religious people do? We go, you better not do anything that day or else. Because we turn it into a way to get right with God from the outside in. That's not the wisdom of Christ. The wisdom of Christ is Mark or Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you. What is Jesus saying? That's work conversation. Sometimes we get this idea from Jesus that we come in and we receive grace, and now Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will get us two pina coladas, and we will sit with our toes in the sand in Tahiti until kingdom come. No. He says, buckle up, because here we go. You're going to work with me, right next to me. You're going to learn from me. I'm going to show you how to do this, but look what he says about his yoke. He says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So work is from God, not to be avoided. So we have foolishness, laziness, and then we're going to turn the heat up. You ready? It's about to get uncomfortable in here. We're moving from toddlers to middle school to entrepreneurs. Here we go. (laughs) Exhibit C, deviousness. Look at verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. Now listen to all the body parts that are involved here to show you how this is an active, this is a movement, this is decisions, this is action. Verse 13, he winks with his eyes. You know what I'm talking about. You ever bought a used car? Oh, this one's nice. This is good. Yeah. We're not sh- I think that odometer stopped working yesterday. It's 40,000 miles. Gotcha. He signals with his feet. Quick, turn the car around so the hubcaps match on both sides. You see this? He points with his fingers. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. And what happens to that person? Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Now, do you see what comes towards this devious behavior and what Solomon wants his son to avoid and what God's wisdom wants us to avert and what Christ came to overcome, this deviousness. Now, folly and laziness in children is normal. But if you're 16 or 27 or 42 or 66, and your primary concern in every situation is, how does this affect me? You have a heart problem. Can I get an amen? And the only answer is to be fixed from the inside out. Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man plots evil. His speech is like a scorching fire. A man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Tell all the single ladies that one. Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in all his ways will suddenly fall. There's this, there's this uh, willingness to do whatever it takes to get whatever you want. And this is deviousness. There is a secretiveness. This is why all the hands and the feet and the winking is happening. Because a couple people are conspiring to work against and to destroy others. They are wondering how to make me benefit at the cost of anybody else. And this is starting to get God mad. And we're going to see that in this last section. The heat gets turned up on this evil and this deviousness God is not okay with. And he's not been okay with it the whole time. When Jesus was walking on the earth, he had a couple of his disciples that pulled him aside quietly to have a a little side conversation with Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus, hold over here for a second. We just want to ask you something. These other guys don't need to be involved in this conversation. Uh, You know when you bring your kingdom to earth, we'd like to sit on your right and your left. The first and the second position of power and we just like you to decide who should be the first and who should be the second. Do you see the, you see the deviousness here? You see the attitude of me first? Now, what does Jesus do? I love this. Jesus says, he calls everybody together. Okay, guys, we need to chat. Imagine how those two guys felt then. Oh, no, 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 never mind, never mind. No, we don't need to, we don't need to talk about this with everybody. Can you imagine how tense that walk was? He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the picture of wisdom. It doesn't make sense. You'll never figure it out. It can't happen from the outside in. The only thing that would make a person say, I'm going to be truly great by becoming the servant of everyone, not needing recognition or power, but coming as low as possible, that is the transformation of the heart. That is the personification of the person of Jesus. That is the wisdom that Solomon is calling out to. He's saying, don't be sneaky, don't contrive, don't be devious, because it will fall on your head. But if you live quietly and self-sacrificing before the Lord, watch where your prosperity comes from. And then lastly, since it's the 1130 service and nobody's waiting to come in, (laughs) final escalation, exhibit D, verse 16. Listen to how terrible this sounds. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Remember, Solomon writing to his son, God writing to his people Israel, Father's heart for us. See what God cares about. Here's what they are. Listen, all the body parts. Haughty eyes. You know the ones I'm talking about. Big eyebrows. Mm, oh, yeah. Look, he knows so much. I see these. I see these in, like, all over the place. Publix, church lobby, car dealerships, everywhere. Mm. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And this is the culminating passage, verse 19, that adds the interpretive key to this entire section and helped me to understand this escalation of evil. Look at this last one. The seventh thing. Six things God hates. Seven are an abomination. This is the bad one. You ready? Here it is. And one who sows discord among brothers. Nothing makes God more angry than gossip and slander and sideways conversations and purposely trying to turn one person from another. It makes his blood boil. And so we've turned the evil from foolishness, turned it up a little bit, laziness, over into deviousness. Now we're getting into what really breaks God's heart, and that is divisiveness. Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with the simple babbler. And it says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Now, Solomon purposely put all this in the negative case. All of these things are bad, worse, and the worst. But I want you to um, understand when we see the seven things God hates, we also conversely get a picture of the seven things God loves. And what we see is the person of Christ. God loves humility and selflessness. God loves honesty and integrity. God loves hands that serve and heal. God loves hearts that plan good and feet that spread good news. God loves those who speak righteousness and justice And God loves those who bring unity with their words. That's who Jesus came and put on display for all people. This is who he was. 
This is what we can read about him right in the Gospels every single day. Any day you'll crack open your Bible, that's the picture of Jesus you will get, the wisdom of God. And this is what he is wanting to do in every single person, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. This is what made up the prayer of Jesus. He's about to die to make atonement for the sins of all mankind. And his singular preoccupation was the oneness of his church and the power of their testimony. John 17, 18 to 23. This is Jesus praying to his father in secret, the disciples nearby, and this is what he says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth, set apart in reality. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. And here's the prayer. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Do you see the powerful testimony of a unified church, of a people of love who aren't willing to spread bad news, talk bad about people and separate others who are always working to get low, to lift other people up, who are walking not in foolishness but in wisdom, not in laziness but in work, not in deviousness but in integrity. This is a people who can proclaim with loud lips, I can tell you the truth because I know him. I can give you the wisdom of God because I know him. I can live in love from the inside out because of who he is, not because of who I am. He wants the world to believe. Verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, speaking of the Holy Spirit here, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly or completely one. And what's the effect? That the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The reason this matters, brothers and sisters, is because it's possible for us to open our Bibles to the book of Proverbs and to read wisdom from God and read those four sections and come to the conclusion that we need to grow up, work hard, be honest, and value others. And that's true. But if you set out to do that, you will find yourself lacking because there's something broken on the inside of you. And this is where the wisdom of God came forth to reveal the transformation that needed to happen. In order for you to grow up into maturity, you need to be adopted and shown love. Do you know that? You need to have a new father, a better father, a whole father, never leaves you. It's always loving. In order for you to work hard and have responsibility, you got to be yoked to Jesus and be taught responsibility and to come alongside of him and realize that life isn't always about your success, about your wins, about your shares, about your posts, about your bank account. It's about you doing what God's put you here to do. In order for you to be honest and have integrity, you need to be transformed and made new and to stop thinking predominantly about how do I take care of me and instead I have a God who takes care of me. Do you see it? And instead of you just trying to value other people, because you can't, I've met most of them, they're, they're a tricky bunch. You've got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and sent into a world that you expect to treat you and malign you, persecute you and hate you, and be willing, like Christ, to lay down your life for them on behalf of them. And this is a miracle. This is a miracle that only God can do. He is the source of our wisdom. And this is what the picture of the church is meant to be. That we turn that evil dial all the way back down and then we put on Christ. We walk in wisdom. We walk in hard work and responsibility. We walk in ways that are honest with integrity 
and that we value other people and we show them love. I guarantee you, if you will let God do this work on you from the inside out and you live in accordance, buckle up to see what happens in the world around you. Your friends, your neighbors, your enemies, your co-ops, your grocery stores, your clerks, your employees, all the people. All they'll be able to say is, wow. And you will be there to say, it's not me, it's him. And that's the wisdom of God. So God, I thank you for your word that's to us today, that's for us every day. That it's alive and active. God, I pray that each of these little exhibit, exhibits that we have looked at, God, would speak to different ones of us in different places. But ultimately, they would drive us to Jesus. God, I pray that as we come to you with open hands and hearts of faith, in the fear of the Lord, that we would receive everything we need. For some, it's to have our debts canceled and cleared and forgiveness. For others, God, it's, it's to have new resolve to work hard, to get up and to follow after you. For others, to value other people in front of us and to find power from your Holy Spirit to give and to forgive and to serve. God, I pray that the seed of your word would find fertile soil in our hearts and that it would grow and flourish, not just in our lives so that we're, we experience a blessing, but as a blessing to others and to glorify you. And God, I thank you for every person, for the time they've invested to sit under your word and to encounter you and to bring their praises and their offerings. And God, I pray that you would receive their worship and love and that you would fill them to overflowing. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. We did it. 19 verses. Well done. Look forward to seeing you next week. be a little easier, a little shorter. It'll be a... A lot of fun. We'll see you next Sunday.